We are so proud of this program. It's called the Expert Access Program. It's completely free to patients by setting up a second opinion online consultation. So we've all become really familiar with Zoom and how that works. It's very similar to that. It's a one-on-one video consultation. And what we do is we ask anyone who's interested, if you have a CLL diagnosis and you're over 18 and you speak English, once you come in, we ask you to sign a health records release form. And we work with a third-party company that will pull those medical records and synthesize and summarize them for the CLL physician. We have several CLL physicians who've contracted with us. They're at that expert level. I just talked to a woman this week that said, I can't believe I talked to someone from Dana-Farber at Harvard about my CLL. is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Carly Bowes, Executive Director of the CLL Society. Carly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Joanna. Carly, tell us about CLL Society. Well, CLL Society is a nonprofit 501c3 that was founded in 2013. And our mission is to address the unmet needs of the CLL and SLL patient population. And we do this through patient education, support, advocacy, and research. Carly, tell us what CLL is. So CLL is chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and it is a blood cancer that is both a leukemia and a lymphoma. And as the name implies, it's chronic. So it is considered a rare disease with around 200,000 Americans living with CLL, with a CLL diagnosis right now. While it's rare, it's also the most common blood cancer among adults. Before we get into the things that CLL Society is doing to thrive, and thriving you are, tell us about your journey. How did you get to become executive director? Yeah, so going way back to the beginning of my career, I knew I wanted to be in education. I was a first-generation college student, but I also knew I wanted to start at the place where I was working with adults who really wanted to learn. So I started working at a university that focused on adult education programs and then went to work for American Academy of Family Physicians. And this was kind of my first step into the healthcare space. At American Academy of Family Physicians, AAFP in Kansas City, I learned so much about working in a nonprofit space. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was there is always a push and pull between mission and margin. While I was there, being a larger organization, 
there were almost different camps of people where a lot of them were focused based on their roles, very focused on meeting the mission, while some based on their roles were very focused on the bottom line. And while I felt like I belonged more in the group that was focused on the mission, I wanted to be able to effectively work with everyone. And I wanted to really understand where these other people were coming from so that we could speak the same language. So that inspired me to go back and get my MBA and bring that practical business acumen to this altruistic, very goal-oriented, mission-oriented passion that I already had. So I felt like that really helped me be successful there. I took that forward to my next position. And then I think what we always do with jobs and also relationships, I've kind of made this metaphor before, is that you're learning from each one. Everything that you do, you should be taking away. Here's what I really loved about that. And here's what it missed. Here's what I was missing there. And over time, hopefully you're crafting a better idea of who you are as a professional and what work you really love doing and what you don't love doing and what you're willing to do. So I came away with a few ideas of what would be kind of the perfect role for me. I loved the idea of a young startup environment and energy of that. I had in a previous life worked at tech during a telecom boom around the turn of the century. And I loved that energy that we were really doing something new and breaking new ground. But I also knew I definitely wanted to stay in the nonprofit space. And I loved the healthcare space, but I wanted something more focused than family medicine. The scope was so broad. It was really hard for me to kind of get my arms around. And I thought it would be so great to work somewhere where there was more of a laser focus on one specific area that we could really go deep on. And culture is always very important to me. It's very important to me to work with and for people who inspire me and people that I believe share my values for doing what's best for the public. And I was so fortunate that as I started to reach out to my professional network and say, here's my dream, here's the type of organization I would love to work for, that this opportunity was there with CLL Society and someone brought it to me and connected me with the founders who were at the time still working on a volunteer basis at CLL Society. No one had yet been formalized as an employee. So they were getting started, lots of great momentum, but looking for someone that could bring in that more formal structure and help set them up to be a sustainable organization into the future. So it was kind of a match made in heaven for both sides, I think. So Carly, it sounds like you're able to really bring a business sense to the running of the nonprofit, which to be honest, I don't always see. But I think that you probably realize that when an organization is run well, you have more resources to do good. Absolutely. And you tamp down the drama. Right. <laughs> so... So let's turn to CLL Society. This is a young organization. You were incorporated in 2013. Your website went up in 2015. And you're the first executive director. Is that right? Patty Kaufman, who was the co-founder, was named as executive director prior to me joining. And when I first joined, my role was COO and CFO. I see. But after, I think, about a year here, Patty asked me if I would step into the executive director role let her focus on communications. And she's since retired, which is always wonderful to be able to have a founder willing to let go of the reins and turn it over to someone else. I think it shows a lot of faith in the organization. And I think that's what most founders probably 
hope for is to be able to know that the organization is moving forward in good hands. So yeah, we were all really blessed to be in a position where we could make that happen. Boy, that's amazing. And one of the things that you were brought in to develop was a strategic plan, which the organization didn't have being such a young organization. So how do you develop a strategic plan from scratch for this organization that was young and had this startup culture and a lot of momentum behind it? Yeah. So we had all those great things. We had all of this momentum. We had really great connections, but we also had a lot of opportunities. And I could see that it would be really easy to get distracted and go down one road that may not lead us to our ultimate goals. I knew it was really important that we define those. And there were a lot of different stakeholders. So I don't know if this is the only way to develop a strategic plan, but I'll tell you the way that I did it. I started with this SWOT analysis and looked at what are our strengths and weaknesses? What are the opportunities and threats? Where do we have unique capabilities? And I identified that for CLL Society and being that our founder, Brian Kaufman, he was a physician, a patient, and an educator. Oh. It is so rare to have someone that has all of those experiences that they can bring to bear. So having that very special person, that was something that CLL Society had that no one else had. We also had an exclusive focus on CLL, which can be a benefit. It can be a drawback, depending on how what the environment is and what you may be doing at the moment. So really just try to figure out what are all of those. And that helped us to kind of know where we need to focus and where we need to, you know, leverage what we do well, stay out of those areas where we don't have as much in the way of capabilities and other organizations do. Let's let them take care of that. Let's take care of those things that make us unique. And really talk to everyone I could. I talked to people who'd been associated with CLL Society, talked to patients talk to the medical advisory board, talk to the board of directors, and talked a lot with the founders about what is it that we want to achieve. And if we have these four pillars, education, support, advocacy, and research, what do we want each of those areas to look like? And started defining. And we started big. Here's the big things. And we defined three different areas where all of our work would fall, one being patient education and support, one being systemic change, which ended up being where policy and research both lived. And then the other being sustainability, building an infrastructure, preparing succession plans for our founders and for myself eventually, and making sure that we have the revenue, as you mentioned, the financial resources to be able to achieve all of these goals. So those were the three areas. And we looked at what are the things we need to do in the next five years, broke those down to objectives. And then from there, we're able to define tactics And then later took that to say, if this is where we want to be in five years, let's create annual plans. And if we're achieving our goals on an annual basis, then by the time that five years is complete, we should have met all of those goals. Yeah. And Carly, you say that culture is really important at CLL Society, and you want the strategic plan to really guide everything that you do. So you do something really interesting. You say that goals need to be tied to the strategic plan objective. So how do you get your staff to really think about the strategic plan as they go about planning a webinar or an outreach program or an Ask the Expert series? How do you connect to mission? Yeah. So other than just talking about it a lot, which I think is important, I had an MBA class. There was one on strategic planning and then one on strategic plan execution. And I remember the professor saying, execution is where strategic plans almost always fail. Very common for organizations to do the exercise 
and then put it on a shelf and it collects dust and you kind of forget about it. So I did not want that to be the trap that CLL Society fell into. And I commiserate with anyone who's been there. It's never too late to go back to it and try it a different way. So the goals document that I've created for the team to use has different columns. One being, you know, what is the goal? Try to set it up in a smart goals type of format. What is the goal? When will you achieve it? But then there's also this column of which strategic objectives does this tie back to? And that encourages each member of the staff to look at what it is that they're wanting to achieve in their area and remind them to go to the strategic plan to say, how is what I'm planning to do? having an impact on the organization and starting with the strategic plan and knowing what areas they own and knowing that that should guide them. And so it's kind of a cascading, the idea is the cascading goal. Everything should start with the strategic plan and go down. And that's not just for executive leaders, that's for every single person on the team. Something else that is a practice that I've adopted to keep the strategic plan fresh in everyone's mind is a commitment that at our quarterly board meetings, we'll report back on progress since the last quarter. So an accountability check-in. Absolutely. And that's good for me and it's good for the rest of the team as well. So we have a shared document that the team has access to. And as we're developing our board materials, I share that out with everyone and say, please go to your sections of the strategic plan and provide us with an update of where you've been since last quarter. It helps keep it fresh in everyone's mind. It helps You know, when you know that that data is ahead of you, that you'll be asked to report back on something, it's going to be something where no one wants to be caught with not having achieved anything in that quarter. So it keeps you really focused. And there are so many times, too, where just, you know, we'll get an idea that is presented to us. A lot of as you grow, if you're doing good work, which I think CLL Society absolutely is, other people take notice and they come to us with opportunities. And sometimes those opportunities have they have a financial incentive associated with them. And it's really hard to say no to money when you're a small nonprofit. Yes, but... But I think it's very important to be intentional and say, how does this tie back to our strategic plan? We've gotten to a point where the people who've been on this team for a while, they're saying it before I say it. And that to me is just music to my ears. Wow. Well, you are doing so much. If you visit the website, you read about the support groups and the webinars and the expert series and the blog and the advocacy that you're doing. But I want to focus on something that you say is a really big focus for 2023. And that is your community hematologist outreach program. What is this and why is it important? Oh, thank you for bringing this up, Joanna, because this is very important to us. A little bit of history here. When CLO Society was first starting, One of the first things that our founder did was develop relationships with key opinion leaders in the CLL space. And these are those expert physicians that are kind of living and breathing CLL research. They're very up to date on the CLL treatment landscape. Almost all, if not all of their patients that they see are in CLL. And a lot of times physicians that have the ability to laser focus on one particular therapeutic area are working at an academic medical center, one of the major cancer centers in the U.S. And so that's where a lot of the work that we did kind of grew out of those areas. A lot of the support groups that were formed and the patients that we reached were through referrals from those major CLL physicians. But what we know about our population and, and most of the population of the U.S. is that 
about 20% of patients will be seen at that type of a setting and 80% will be seen at the community setting. And in the community setting, often if you're seeing a hematologist, we're, we're saying community hematologist, it could be a hematologist, oncologist, but these are people with a broad scope of practice. So an oncologist may be seeing all types of cancers in their areas, tumor, solid cancers, and blood cancers, which would be just beyond, I don't even know how to keep up with it all. For hematologists, they're focusing on the blood cancers, but even then, they may not see a lot of CLL patients. So their ability to stay up to date with everything going on in the therapeutic landscape is going to be limited. And that's going to have a downstream effect on the patients. So if you're a patient being seen at the community setting and you're not connected with CLL society, you're not part of a support group, and your physician is not laser-focused on CLL, there is a lot of data to suggest that you're not getting the best care. You may not be getting all of the tests you need. Outcomes tend to not be as favorable for this group. So we need to change that. We need to reach this other 80%. And we're starting with the physicians the way that we did essentially with the rest of our population. We want them to know that you don't have to know everything about CLL because we do. You don't have to be all things to your patient because we can be. So send them to us. We'll get them connected with the support group. We'll get them up to date. They can sign up for our newsletter and they'll know everything as it's breaking in CLL. There are so many resources. You mentioned a lot of really great ones, Joanna. There are so many resources on our website and ways to get involved and to learn. And we think a patient that is empowered with the best information is going to get their best care. So we're trying to get in front of all of these community hematologists in the country with information about CLL Society to share directly with their patients. Carly, how are you doing that when these hematologists are busy? And like you said, if you're a hematologist and you might see a few CLL patients, but you see patients with other blood diseases, Mm -hmm. how do you get them to pay attention to what you're doing so that they can really provide their patients with the best care? Got any good tips there? Well... It's really challenging. I wish there was an easy answer. We would have done it already. You know, when I was at AFP, I focused a lot on continuing medical education with the physician as the audience. And what we learned is they will typically select education that aligns with the patients that they see most frequently. We could put out a really excellent education on CLL, but it's not a if you build it, they will come scenario. Yes. So what we want to do is make it as easy as possible. All they need to remember is CLLsociety.org. They don't need to remember all of the other information. We're giving them handouts. We're making it easy. They can put it out and they can hand it to their patients. Also, another trick of the trade, I we're so fortunate to have a really strong nurse on our team. And now as of two weeks ago, we now have two really strong nurses on our team. But they're very familiar with how things work in the practice setting and saying sometimes the doctor isn't the best person they go to. So if we can reach out to the nurses, that may be better. Ah. How can we be effective? We know there's a lot of mail that gets thrown in the trash right away. So how do we make sure that whatever we're sending them doesn't get immediately in the trash? And, you know, when we figure it out, we'll let you know. But that's one way. And I think a multi-pronged approach is important. We're throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. One thing that we're doing is going out physically to a lot of these conferences that these community hematologists are likely to attend and where their healthcare teams are likely to attend. And we are setting up exhibit booths and trying to draw people in and get them interested. 
And again, we have someone on our team who's just really fantastic at being effective at manning a booth, also the nurse. But I think that any way that we can reach them, we're going to be trying to do. And partnering with pharmaceutical companies who already have their reach into those spaces and saying, well, a lot of times there are firewalls that prevent them from just giving us the information or being able for them to just hand out our resources. We're looking constantly for creative solutions and asking and saying, maybe there's nothing you can do, but here's what our needs are. How can you help us? And I've been pretty relentless with asking, here's what we're trying to do. What advice do you have for us? How can you help us out? So always ask. Yeah, yeah. So Carly, you are reaching out to the hematologists, but you also have this really neat program where you will actually connect patients with experts. Because as you said earlier, you said that if you have access to a healthcare provider who focuses on your disease state, you have a survival advantage. That's right. And if these, I guess, top researchers are at the Cleveland clinics and the Mayo clinics and the you know, MD Anderson, yes. you'll actually connect me as a patient with an expert? How are you doing that? That sounds amazing. We are so proud of this program. It's called the Expert Access Program. It's completely free to patients by setting up a second opinion online consultation. So we've all become really familiar with Zoom and how that works. It's very similar to that. It's a one-on-one video consultation. And what we do is we ask anyone who's interested, if you have a CLL diagnosis and you're over 18 and you speak English, We do try to to limit it to the U.S. because our experts may not know what all drugs are available in the other countries. But, I mean, that's pretty much it on the limitations. Once you come in, we ask you to sign a health records release form, and we work with a third-party company that will hold those medical records and synthesize and summarize them for the CLL physician. We have several CLL physicians who've contracted with us. They're at that expert level. I just talked to a woman this week that said, I can't believe I talked to someone from Dana-Farber at Harvard about my CLL. So the health records are released. You're able to submit a few questions in advance. So that physician, before you ever meet, has reviewed your records, reviewed your questions, has a good sense of your case. And then you get on the video and you're able to ask whatever questions you may have. And we see that on the back end of that, 75 to 80% of CLL patients who go through that process are going to make some sort of change as a result of that program. And for those who don't want to make a change, that's also a win because they are finding out that everything that my physician is telling me is lining up with what these top experts are telling me. And that's very reassuring. So there's really no possible bad outcome from one of these consultations. Either you'll find out that Yes, you know everything that you need to know. You've had all the right tests. You're aware of all the treatments. You're completely on the right track. Or there's really something you should reconsider. You should go have a conversation with your provider about getting this test or have this conversation with your provider about why they chose one treatment over another. And at the end of the consultation, I should have mentioned, the patient is provided with a handout that summarizes their consultation. So they don't have to remember everything. They can share with their provider. Yes, that is absolutely the intention. Wow. And that it then further supports shared decision-making. Wow, amazing. Absolutely free to the patient. Absolutely free. Carly, let's turn to something different. You say that advocacy is a big part of what you do, and you were very active during the pandemic in making sure that the needs of CLL patients, and in general, the immunocompromised patient population, that their needs were met. But you say that the pandemic accelerated your advocacy. 
in that you started interacting with government agencies in a way that you hadn't before. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, we had talked about advocacy in terms of lowercase a advocacy and capital A advocacy. We talked about lowercase a advocacy being, we kind of informally, internally define this as helping patients to advocate for their own best interests and their own best care. And we had always seen that capital A advocacy, which is more policy work, not quite lobbying, but more, you know, advocating to policymakers and regulatory bodies, that that was something that we would develop more over time. There were some early engagements in that area, but it wasn't an area that we had really built a plan for yet. So COVID was not on our strategic plan. It surprised us all. (laughs) We really had to accelerate our entry into this space because the needs of the immunocompromised were not always, as you said, they were not always recognized or they were an afterthought. And to this population of people that were highly at risk, who were having much higher rates of infection, and then once infected, having higher rates of hospitalization and higher mortality rates, this was a really big deal. So we started doing whatever we knew how to do. And frankly, there was a lot we didn't know. So we were learning on the fly. One of the main things we learned is this is a really complicated area. So we were getting ourselves in front of media, trying to put pressure on that way, trying to raise this issue as something that the public was aware of and might help to support us. We went out to all the other groups that we knew of that were also immunocompromised and tried to form joint letters. We went out to our patient population, did a grassroots letter writing campaign, but we were learning as we went. And while we did have some successes, when we kind of reached that point where we were able to take a breath, we thought, this is an area where we do need to be involved, but we need some more expertise. So we did a search and we talked to everyone that we knew, some of our pharmaceutical company partners, as well as other nonprofit agencies, and tried to find out who would be a good partner for us in this area, who really knows about policy, healthcare policy, and could help us to develop plans. And that's what we ultimately did was work with the consultant who got to know what is CLL? What are the special needs within this population? And where do we have the opportunity to be effective? And through that work, we ended up developing a policy institute, which is in its inaugural year. But we are moving forward. I look forward to checking back in with you in a year or so to talk about the ways that the Policy Institute has made changes. Unlike a lot of the other work that we do, it's a slow moving train. So we're getting used to that too, is that you can put a lot of effort into something and not necessarily know for a while how that's going to come out on the back end, but trying to stay focused on advocating for the patient and doing the right thing. And Yeah. Carly, I have clients who say, gosh, we have this legislative agenda and not this year. And it's disappointing and they're going to try and bring it up again next year. And it's sometimes hard for organizations that in their other areas are able to do so much. Right. There's one last thing I want to talk to you about, and that is your research grant program. Yeah. Tell us about that. Are you trying to encourage more research, more solutions? Why fund research? It would be easy to look at the CLL treatment landscape and see that there are a lot of really excellent drugs available to treat CLL. That's absolutely true. To extrapolate that then CLL is essentially a solved problem from a treatment perspective is a conclusion that a lot of people come to, but it is not a correct conclusion. And the reason why is that, as it's stated in our name, it's a chronic condition. 
At the time of diagnosis, you may or may not need treatment. Some people never need treatment. They die with the CLL diagnosis that was never treated. Some people do need it pretty quickly. And each of these treatments, there are really only two classes of drugs that are approved for CLL that are FDA approved. And while there are multiple drugs in this first class, which is the BTK inhibitor class, as it stands now, you have to choose one from this list. Once one of these drugs fails, is no longer effective, which happens very often, or the patient develops resistance to it or has such extreme side effects that they aren't able to continue, that class is kind of closed. Then you can move on to the second class, which would be the BCL2 inhibitor. I should be clear, you could start with the BCL2 inhibitor. You don't necessarily have to start with the BTKI. Regardless, Two courses of treatment are FDA approved for patients. And a lot of times, very, very often, you need more than two courses of treatment. So if you were to be on the BCL2 inhibitor and it stopped working for you and you go to the BTK inhibitor, it will stop working for you. That may happen within a course of 10 years and maybe less than that. If your life expectancy from the time of treatment to your life expectancy is longer than that, there aren't a lot of options available to you. Ah, so that's what you're trying to do is kind of generate more research so that people don't run out of options. Absolutely. And there are a few other issues that do come up that we definitely want to work on as well, but those are major unmet needs. We need more options. We need more lines of treatment. So while other organizations that have a broader scope across all leukemias or all lymphomas may prioritize other disease states over CLL, we, with our exclusive focus on CLL, are always going to put all of our research funds directly into CLL research, which is very important to those who are living with CLL. Right, right. Carly, how do you know that you're being successful, that you're making a difference? I love that question. You know, long-term, our ultimate goal is to find a cure for CLL. That would be, we've definitely made a difference. We've done everything that we ever wished to do. You know, before that, even a really big goal is to reach those 80% of people that are living with CLL who aren't getting their best care. Those things are going to take a long time. So in the meantime, I think it's really important to have milestones that you can achieve as an organization and to celebrate those milestones. If your goal is so far out, it can feel like you're never getting there. So By all measures, CLL Society, it's so exciting. We've grown year over year in any way that you want to measure success, which is amazing. Growth isn't the only success metric. There are a lot of things that we want to do. I think adherence to the plan, reaching those objectives that we've outlined for ourselves, accomplishing those is a huge interim win. You know, you did mention culture briefly, and I want to go back to it for just a minute because it is so key because you won't win every time. And I think having an environment where people feel comfortable admitting when something didn't work and where you can really have an honest examination of saying, okay, that didn't work. What do we need to do differently next time? And making people feel like that's okay, that encourages us to be innovative, to try new things, supporting each other and knowing that, you know, we all have this shared common goal. And again, I think having a mission that everyone is really bought into and having a strategic plan that everyone's very bought into, these are essential components to having that culture where we all say, okay, it's not about you or me or this department or that department. It's about 
the patient. It's about this mission. Let's work together. Let's help each other. Let's support each other. And I feel like that has been such a huge part of why CLO Society has been successful. What an impressive array of services for patients and doctors alike. I'm going to hold you to your promise. I'm going to have <laughs> you back next year and we'll talk about how the Policy Institute is doing. I would love that. And anything else that you're working on, especially the results of your outreach program. So thank you for everything that you're doing. I hope you'll come back soon. I would love to, Joanna. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.